2: Hello and welcome to the Parting Shot podcast, Newsweek's weekly dose of everything pop culture. I'm H Allen Scott. On this week's episode, I'll be chatting with Broadway legend Harvey Fierstein about his new memoir, "I Was Better Last Night." I'll also chat with Instagram whisperer Evan Ross Katz about his new book on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's called "Into Every Generation, a Slayer Is Born." Oh, and we'll have a brief moment with Anne Hathaway today. All that and so much more on this week's Parting Shot podcast. This week's episode is jam-packed. But before we get into it, let me just say up top, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, and I hope you do because you're listening to it, consider leaving a little rating and review, and maybe share the podcast on social media. It really helps. Okay, now, for your roundup of all the essential pop culture news you need to know from this week. Director Jane Campion received considerable online backlash this week for saying this during her acceptance speech at the Critics' Choice Awards.
3: I'd also just like
4: to uh, give my love out to my fellow 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 the guys <laughs> the nominees and and you know serena and venus you are such marvels however you do not play against the guys
1: <laughs> like i have to
2: <laughs> she later released a statement to the hollywood reporter about her comments saying i made a thoughtless comment equating what i do in the film world with all that serena williams and venus williams have achieved I did not intend to devalue these two legendary black women and world-class athletes. Newsweek's Emma Nolan covered this story and the online backlash to her comments. Go read it all on Newsweek.com. Last week, I had Pulitzer Prize-nominated historian Eric Cervini on to talk about Disney's connection to a Florida bill critics call the Don't Say Gay bill. Since that recording, Disney's CEO Bob Chapek announced that the company would be pausing their political donations. Now Disney staffers have started a website called WhereIsChapek.com where they thank the CEO for his recent actions and statements, but have announced several walkouts until the Disney CEO addresses a set of demands, some of which include that the Walt Disney Company must immediately and indefinitely cease all campaign donations to these politicians involved in the creation or passage of the Don't Say Gay or Trans bill, that the Walt Disney Company must publicly commit to an acceptable plan that protects employees from hateful legislation— and that the company must reaffirm the company's commitment to protecting and advocating for its LGBTQIA plus staff, even in the face of political risk. Head over to Newsweek.com to read our full coverage on this story. So another story you need to check out this week is Jamie Burton's story on WeWork. It's about the film We Crashed, and Jamie is here to talk about his interview with Anne Hathaway, who is one of the co-stars of uh, We Crashed. Right, Jamie?
4: That's correct. Yeah. Thanks, H. Allen. Uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to manage to have a, a brief sit down one on one with Anne Hathaway to discuss her approach to uh, We Crashed, how she'd essentially actually never even heard of a WeWork before.
2: So tell me what We crash is about first, because I, I feel like people are going to be a lot like Anne Hathaway and not know a lot about WeWork.
4: <laughs> totally. So I think maybe I take it for granted having lived in a city and you see a WeWork at every city street corner, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, However, I mean, every
2: urban city, they're everywhere. But if you go to the middle of America, there's not many we or at least in the United States here, there's not many works really anywhere in sort of non-urban centers. Yeah, and,
4: and actually the funny thing is that, you know, in cities you can't move for works. However, WeCrash is essentially a story about how there's loads of Works now but there might not be many others to come. Uh, we Crashed is a story about uh, Adam and Rebecca Newman, um, how they, in 2009-10, they met, they fell in love. They created this amazing business empire based on office space. Yeah. We work as a place where companies will go and hire this office space. It was successful in Manhattan where it started, and then it grew and it expanded, and it became this multi-billion dollar global enterprise 47 <laughs> billion i think 40, yes. yeah it's marketed as um, a love story worth 47 billion dollars wow. however as it's laid out in the first episode it ain't 47 billion dollars anymore because there was a, a fantastic crash and burn uh it, it all, that empire came tumbling all around them and this is the story of the rise and the spectacular fall of the we work empire
2: and so Anne's character rebecca she, you said that there was something about sort of how she approached playing the part. Cause she didn't know much about rework going into the part.
4: Yeah. So, um, obviously the challenge, whenever you, uh, for an actor or an actress, whenever they play a real person is how much emphasis do they put on playing this real person? Do they go and talk to them themselves? Or do they just try and play a character based on the real person in Anne's case, she kind of had both options available
0: to her. So, when I read the pilot, uh, I did the first thing you do, which is to Google the person that you were meant to be playing, and, um, and I got the media's take on her, and then I, I, I knew that we had a few people in common, people that knew us both, and so then I talked to them, and their assessment of her was wildly different than the public uh, account of her, um, had, what had been shared, and the word that kept coming up was sweet. People kept talking about how sweet she was. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because on paper, these things that she's done are not so sweet, but that that's people's takeaway from her. Even after all of this, people, and they acknowledge everything that happened. They said, yeah, but she's just such a sweet person. That juxtaposition was really interesting to me. And I thought there is so much to work with in terms of playing a character like this. And then I just, uh, just kind of dove in.
4: I think the interesting thing for Anna in approaching this was that uh, it's been such a well-publicized story over the last decade, and especially in the last two year, two or three years, where WeWork has kind of had this grand public downfall. However, she admits herself that she wasn't too aware of what a WeWork was, and she kind of blames her kids for that too.
0: So when I, uh, so when I was offered this part, I had, I didn't actually, I'd never heard of a WeWork. <laughs> I don't know what. Okay. Yes, I. The only way I can. Explain it is that uh, during their key years, I was like, I had very, very young children. So I think that maybe I just wasn't as interested in the news of startups as I was in the news of how the heck do I do this new thing? But of
2: course, you, Jamie, had a nice clarification for why Anne Hathaway might not know what a WeWork is because she doesn't really work in offices.
4: Um, I think it's understandable that you might not have heard of a WeWork because I think in your line of work, you're not particularly looking for office space, are you? So I get it.
0: It's true. It's true, but also I am just I'm but I'm someone I'm, I'm I'm curious about the world we live in, so I was a little annoyed with myself. I mean, it's such a huge story. It's a little strange that I completely missed it. But anyway, we don't have to focus on that. I'm here now. Well,
2: thanks Jamie so much for being here. Yeah,
4: thank you so much for your time. I appreciate being here.
2: Can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. You can check out all these stories and more on newsweek.com. Of course, stay tuned to the end of this episode for my 62nd roundup of everything you need to watch, read and look out for in culture next week. But first, my chat with Harvey Firestein, right after this break. Actor, playwright and screenwriter Harvey Firestein is a unique force. One of the first gay performers to achieve success while being out, Firestein broke down barriers on Broadway and in Hollywood. Known for his voice, Fierstein used his uniqueness to create parts for himself, for winning his first two Tonys for the play Torch Song Trilogy, where he played a drag queen looking for love. It was later adapted into a feature film. Since then, Fierstein went on to win another Tony for acting in the musical Hairspray, but also became just as known for his writing, winning a Tony for his book to the musical La Fall and also receiving nominations for the musicals Newsies and Kinky Boots. This year, his writing will once again be seen on Broadway in the revival of Funny Girl. I spoke with Firestein about his life and career, which he captured in his great new memoir, I Was Better Last Night. What inspired you to want to write a memoir? That's such an undertaking.
3: I didn't. The <laughs> pandemic hit. Yeah. I cleared my desk of all the work that I had to do. I had... Um, I had to get the script ready for Funny Girl, mm-hmm. though that got put off for two years. Yeah. We start rehearsal in two weeks from today. <gasps> um,
2: I'm so excited yes, about that.
3: It is. So am I. Yeah. So am I. And um, and then I'm writing a show, an, an original musical with Alan Menken. Mm. So I caught up. I caught up with all my work on that. And then what else did I have to do? And I had like a bunch of stuff. So I did that all. Yeah. And all of a sudden, my desk was clear, which is not the usual state. Yeah. And I said, "Oh, you know what." The sewing machine. I promised a lot of quilts because I make quilts, yeah. Um, and and I promised like babies had been born, people got married, all kinds of stuff happened. So I went down to the sewing machine and, <laughs> and zoom, 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 <laughs> made five quilts. Yeah, in fact, I still have two half-made quilts on the <laughs> sewing machine because I never got back there again. Yeah. And um, and then my agent said to me, "Why don't you write your memoir?" I said, "Oh, don't be silly. I don't write prose. I yeah. don't write whole sentences. That's why I write movies and and plays." Mm-hmm. And he but he, but he said, "But you write op-ed pieces." I said, "But op-eds just a you know yeah. uh, short form." Yeah. And he said, "Well, try it." I said, "Well, good." <laughs> so I sat down and I wrote um, the first four paragraph four up chapters, maybe three chapters, something like that, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I wasn't really sure. But the, the, not the forward, but the first chapter talks about uh, being in second grade and yes. my friend Philomena was an evil witch and all that. So I sent that to her. We're still friends since kidding.
2: Wow. Wow. Yeah.
3: Philomena and I've been friends. Since. So I sent that to her. And she sent back the photograph that's in the book of me in drag at seven years old or whatever it was
2: at Halloween, right? Yes, that yeah. one was Halloween yeah,
3: she sent that back and I said, okay, so this really happened <laughs> <laughs> here's proof <laughs> here's proof, and so go ahead and write the memoir and and so uh I did and it was um really interesting
2: its it was it it is interesting and your words your your personality comes through so so much in it i it's like you're there i hear your voice when i read it it's one of those memoirs i've never i read i when i was reading it i could just probably because you have such a distinctive voice but i i heard you telling me the story which i never have when i'm reading a memoir
3: oh that's wonderful well you know as i said in the book i asked shirley McLean, who has written like 20 memoirs because she's lived seven eight hundred lives she's
2: still stuck on that limb
3: yeah, she sat on none of them. <laughs> and um, so I asked. I asked her. Mm-hmm. I said, and she's and and I have it in the book. She said, "Trust your memory. Memory will be the thing that edits it, because you know I'm 200 years old. If I wrote everything that happened, is talk about a <laughs> endless, endless. So um, so get so 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 let your memory do the editing for yeah. you. Um. So, and that's the hardest of the hard. So, so I did that and I just let it sort of flow. Yeah. And, and I had this great editor, Peter Gethers, who, um, who did the two Sondheim books, you know, oh, yeah. the big books of lyrics. He, he edited those They're yeah. wonderful. And he just left me alone. He was one, he just was keep going, keep going, wow. keep going. The hardest part I found yeah. was when I was done. How do you turn the spigot off yeah. once that memory thing is going? And then, and you can, and and I refuse to go back and start adding stories because yeah. I said it's four hundred pages. Yeah, it's enough with that homo. <laughs> so, if people like it and if it does well, we got volume two. Yeah, you can get a volume <laughs> two. I mean, Shirley McLean did it. Why not you? McLean got up to seventy five eighty, but um i saw a review i saw a review this morning they sent me that said um they called it my debut memoir i said debut memoir that's a funny term
2: that is a funny term
3: there's it's so many funny.
2: that's that's the other thing that i took from the memoir that i kept finding myself like scrambling cause i don't i don't have a note i mean i have a notepad but i never have it by me while i'm reading i kept finding myself like going by and writing down little quotes from the memoir because you have these... I mean, this is how you can tell you're an amazing playwright, but, like, you have, like, uh, you know, attention is nourishment, the stain of humanity talking about your grand, your your parents' te- uh, Holocaust tattoos and the spent the night expelling memories into gym, a gym sock until I fell asleep into dream, which is, like, such a sentence that I think every young man, regardless of sexuality, <laughs> can relate to. And it's... It was so well written and and the prose the the what like you were saying you write prose and that really comes through in the memoir like so much I so do.
3: writing plays you you have to be true to the voice so very often a writer may have a phrase like that in their head they really shouldn't put it in a play most people don't say stuff like that off the top of the head like do you want a cup of coffee and the and then i'll expel my memories you know it's like that yeah so so that kind of writing you kind of know it's there in your head but you never find a place to put it Mm -hmm. and here and here was all of a sudden i could do that
2: so in the book you know i of course am a gay man student of history like i love reading about gay rights history, and one of the things that really struck me about your memoir is it highlights pivotal moments in queer rights in general with Stonewall, with the AIDS epidemic. So many moments that, even though you're, of course, you know, New York City, East Coast based, and so many of those moments happen in that part of the country, it, it really is a touchstone for so much, your life in a lot of ways is a touchstone for the gay rights movement. And I wanted to know if you had that In the back of your mind as you were writing the memoir, how important that would be to your story and to us reading it.
3: You know, uh, um, are you aware when you're living your life what the perspective is? Of course not. Yeah. Um, I knew something was going on. I knew that my idea of who I was and who the gay people I was meeting were didn't match up with what I was being told it was supposed to be. The first gay people I knew, and you read about it in the book, is is at the community theater, yeah. where the director, um, Bruce Wyatt, and his lover, Bud, uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, yeah. um, they were together for 30-something years, so... The first couple I knew was a married couple who had a house in, Long- in Staten Island, mm-hmm. um, and were just as happy and normal as any heterosexual couple. It wasn't until I started reading things like Tea and Sympathy and Staircase and Boys in the Band and, that I was "Oh, we're supposed to be unhappy? Oh, I didn't know that." Yeah. Um, so it didn't match up. So, so thankfully, I mean, I can't imagine. I can because so many people have told me about it what it would be like to grow up gay and ha- never meet another gay person until they were 30. Yeah. I know that happens, but thankfully I was 13 mm-hmm. and I knew happy gay people. Um, I also knew unhappy gay people, but yeah. I I no unhappy straight people. Yeah. So um, so that that was part of the perspective. Then watching history around you going, though I was too young to go into a bar, I could still go to the GAA meetings and stuff like that when the revolution was happening. That was very exciting, very confusing, though. Yeah. I don't even talk about it in the book. The biggest thing that used to happen at the beginning of every one of those meetings was an hour-long fight <laughs> on whether the lesbians would talk first on the gay men. With all sex. <laughs> who's gonna be in charge of this meeting? It was always like, can we finish this already and get on with this thing? Yeah. It was such a battle. Yeah, we did not get along. Yeah, lesbians and gays did not get. You know, I, I even in Torch, like I have that two second thing where they yes. walk in, in that they walk into a lesbian bar and then chased out. That's what it was like back then. Yeah, because um, I had a lot of lesbian friends and I couldn't go to their bars and they couldn't come to my bars. Wild, and it was. And what changed that? AIDS. Yeah. Because when we were dying and we needed blood and nobody would go near us, our lesbian sisters were there. Yeah. And they formed the, uh, the. I think it was called uh, Blood Sisters yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, and all of a sudden, everything changed. Mm-hmm. They came to our aid. It wasn't that they had AIDS. We, it was still a gay man's disease, but they were there for us and Everything shifted then, because yeah. who could separate us now? Yeah, we couldn't be separated out now. Exactly. But when you think, so anyway, so so living that life and watching all of that and having friends and and being in art school, obviously, yeah, helped.
2: that helped you because
3: because you, we all know what art artie means. Wink, wink. <laughs> He's a little artie. Yeah. <laughs> Put him some slack. He's a lawn. Yeah. <laughs> oh.
2: <laughs> don't expect a grandkid. <laughs> well, but now
3: we do. Yeah, now you can. <laughs> now, look, yeah, well, now we can. Now we're yeah. expected to. Yeah,
2: yeah, true. Oh, I mean, I, can, I, don't,
3: I don't tell people I put on wear. I tell them I'm pregnant.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's another thing about, about the book that, that I was surprised. Because, I mean, I feel like I... After I saw Torch Song when I was a kid, I went back and, of course, obsessively looked over your career and the things you worked on and what you wrote. And I didn't know that you had started in experimental theater with the Andy Warhol play. I was so surprised by that. How did the experimental theater sort of movement of the 70s really impact the work you have continued to do since then?
3: Well, that's, but that's exactly it. I know, you know, the most most showbiz bios, as you know, it opens with, and my mother took me to see Sound of Music. And I said, one day that's going to be me on that stage. (laughs) Or I just saw, I just saw somebody. Oh, um, um, oh, adorable! What's that? Uh, uh, Jonathan Groff. Oh yeah, was he was just on TV and he was saying and and they went to see a show and his father said and I guess he played an instrument. His father said and someday that could be you in that <laughs> orchestra. He said no, that's going to be me on that stage. Yeah. Well, I was the opposite. We went to the theater all the time. Uh, but my parents, my mother took us to see everything.
2: Yeah, your mother was big into the arts. Big
3: into the arts. Yeah, and um, and my father got dragged along. He was stopping. Yeah. but he. Yeah. You know, but he he was brought up. He in wanted an a night, a nice night. <laughs> yeah, but well, he was brought up in an orphanage in the Catskills. Yeah, at 13 years old, he was thrown out of the yeah. orphanage because at 13 you're an adult in Judaism, mm. and uh he was given the keys to a milk truck, yeah. and and that would be his career driving a milk truck. Wow. So anyway, so yeah, he went he went though he whether he wanted to or not. He got a nice nap. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and a lot of nice naps in the theater. But I, I went to the theater, and I never thought I want to be up there. That was not. But I was an arty kid, and I yeah. was in art school. And my 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 friend Lauren said, my mother's starting a community theater. Yeah, um she needs people to make posters. They don't have money to print posters, um, so a bunch of us went down the basement of a church, and we got high on smelling magic markers yeah. and made posters. And the next thing you knew, I was somehow in theater yeah. um, and I was working in community theater uh, and that theater that we founded mm-hmm. that I was a founding member of at 14 years old, still exists. Wow. The gallery players of Park Slope, they, oh, that's yeah, gallery players of Brooklyn Heights, yeah. um, but they still exist and they're still there. Um, uh, it's got to be at least three or four months and um. <laughs> <laughs> happened was but i was an art student i was at the high school of art and design i was at pratt institute taking my my art courses and all and there was an ad in the paper for andy warhol doing a play and having auditions and i said there is no way i'm ever going to get to meet andy warhol but if i audition for his play he could be there (laughs) and and i'm an actor i've had to be in community theater so i i i my friend Irene Stein, she took a photograph of me. We printed it up that had eight by 10. I, I typed up a, a resume. We Xeroxed it at the, in the library for a yeah. nickel. And I, I stapled it together. And down I went to something called La Mama, the yeah. Vaste. I don't know from such a thing. Uh, La Mama. And I auditioned and I walked in to this room with these very um, singular people. And um, and they said, what have you got? And I said, I have a, because it asked for a monologue. Yeah. And I did uh, Juliet from the balcony scene of Romeo and Juliet. Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face. That's when a maiden blush be paint my cheek for that which thou didst hear me speak. But farewell <laughs> compliment, dost thou love me. Anyway, I did that. Well, They're all screaming, laughing. Yeah. And I'm going, are they screaming, laughing because I'm terrible? Or are they screaming, laughing because they don't know it's Shakespeare? Um <laughs> And I got the role. Wow. And so so all of a sudden I was in this play. And once it was in the play, I started realizing I'm not just in a play. I'm part of or I could be part of this off-off-Broadway experimental thing. And I started meeting people that were creating the ridiculous theater movement at that yeah. time, because there was the ridiculous theater, which is Ronald Tavel created the theater, of the ridiculous, but John uh, Vaccaro broke it off his way, had the theater, of the ridiculous and Charles led went that way with the ridiculous theatrical company. Yeah. And Ronald Tavel created the theater, of the lost content because mm. nobody gets along, of course, they're yeah. artists. <laughs> and, and you know, and I was in the middle of all this and I'm doing all these plays and I'm doing, and, and it was wonderful. And it was, um, and during the day, I'd go to Pratt where they would talk about experimental theater and experimental artists, mm-hmm. and I knew them all. Yeah. I mean, they're telling me my you know my painting teacher is telling me about about Albert Fine, and I said, "Oh, Albert, you want something from Albert? Do you yeah. want me to get some?" <laughs> You know, or Ray Johnson. Ray Johnson created uh, a mail art. Yeah, Uh, uh, where you mail, and he said, "You you want a postcard? I'll I'll tell Ray to send you a postcard." (laughs) I mean, so it was like it was kind of fun. Yeah, it was. Um, um, I was. They were studying it. I was living it. Yeah. Um. So I had this, and I had this world that was so many worlds because at home I was a nice Jewish boy. Yeah. Then I was the college student. Mm -hmm. Then I was the experimental theater person. Yeah. And then I was this becoming very sexually active street person yeah. hanging out on Christopher street. I, I you know, uh, everybody now knows about Marsha P Johnson, yeah. but you know, that was one of the people I hung out on the street that, you yeah. Miss Harvey, yeah. have you got a pennies for a sister today? You know, <laughs> this, this, you hear Marsha coming down the street. Yeah. Um and I think that I think I included a photograph. You, of did. Me and you did in March. You did, yeah,
2: book. in a so, March. I uh, think, you, yeah,
3: yeah, probably marching. Yeah. Well, so as as we as, as we you did in those
2: days, as you did, yeah.
3: And I think that was the year they told us not to come in drag. I think that was. The yeah, I don't
2: think you were in drag us. that year. I don't think Marsha was either. Actually, no.
3: I, they they yelled at us. Yeah. It was a year that they yelled at us that, that um, we have to stop coming in drag. We have to stop being outrageous because we're trying to get good publicity. Which, and we listen. We listened for a minute.
2: Do you feel – Do you feel? In, I mean, for me, you're such a huge drag influence. Drag has gone in such a direction, RuPaul's Drag Race and everything. Do you, part of me is like you don't get the respect <clears throat> that you're owed in terms of what you did for drag. Like yes. how do you feel about that, like in, about drag today?
3: I love it. I love I love I love that every generation takes on what it needs to take on mm. to, to move on. Like I was trying to say the, the drag I grew up with oh, Charles Pierce. Yeah. Oh. You know, um who is a dear friend and he's in the movie of George yeah. Song. I, I wrote that role just to get him on film. I wanted to have him on film. Yeah. Um and there was that was a kind of formal kind of drag. Mm-hmm. We didn't lip sync, we did. We did. uh, Everything was live. um, And then then the next generation comes and does what it does. The kind of makeup that drag queens do now is so I mean, our idea of makeup. Hollywood Lawn talks about it in her book, A Low Life and High Heels. She says, you know, as long as you had a life magazine, you had makeup. Because you could take a, a Q tip yeah. and wet the end of a Q tip and then turn to a colored picture. You know, you need blue yeah. and you take the blue and then you put the blue on. Wow. You need the black eyeliner and then as long as you had a life magazine, you had makeup though we mostly stole it from from yeah. uh Woolworths, Yeah. You yeah. know. Yeah. Of course. But stole a lot of makeup from Willworth. <laughs> They were still around. I had sent him a check for 50 bucks because probably a hundred pounds of makeup was about 50 bucks then. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, but uh, yeah. So, so drag was, was different. You know, if you had, if you managed to have a decent wig. Yeah. Oh my God. You lent that to everybody. What wig, what wig went round and round and round the world. Yeah. but you know, and it's so different. I watched Paul's Drag Race with these incredible outfits. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm friends with with several. You know, got yeah. like Nina West out on the road yeah. now doing yeah. doing Edna yeah. and and my friend Bianca Del Rio. Love. I mean, yeah, those outfits, yeah, are Bianca's. I mean, it's like I want to slap the bitch dead. Yeah, I want to slap. Her and how dead.
2: skinny she is now too.
3: I'm so, oh well that's God. Yeah. Well, she can't. She has no time to eat. Yeah. The mountain painting that shit on her face—that <laughs> takes so long. Who could, eat? Who could she, eat? She would have. She'd have great eyes and crumbs going down the whole. Thing. Was, <laughs> is that a good look for a drag queen? No. <laughs> but you, you know, but but look at the world we live in. I mean, I see heterosexual men mm-hmm. with nail polish all the time. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I say you know, it's anyway, you cannot feel bad about how things develop. Yes. All you can possibly do is enjoy them. Do I think I deserve more credit? Fuck that. What do I need the credit for?
2: Torch song was such a touch point for so many people in queer representation, but just in also Broadway history in a lot of ways. And I have a few questions about Torch Song. So like I know hindsight, of course, is 2020, and like you were saying, the truth is not always as easy as telling and remembering it today is is even, even more difficult. But when you were in the moment and torch song was clicking that people were coming to the show and 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 it was very popular but before maybe you won the tony for it like did you feel like you were doing something special did you feel that energy in that moment that this was something that mattered
3: um i was feeling both sides of it because I did have like the Glines and that kind of people, the people who produced it, mm-hmm. loving it and, and people, you know, Stephen Soundheim coming in yeah. and loving it and people like that. And then I had the political people, mm-hmm. the, the gay political, you know, stalwart people yeah. who hated it. Why? Who hated it. Because I was saying that we had to be heterosexuals, oh, yeah. because because I had a, somebody who wanted to be in a monogamous relationship, who wanted to have children, mm-hmm. and and so I was getting crap for just trying to turn this into. I mean, there are people who are still around. I don't even mention anymore. I used to bother mentioning yeah. it. Why do that? Why why make them look foolish now? Yeah. Um, and but but anyway, I I was attacked a lot, um, and so you you just have to always just follow your your follow your instinct i described in the book that towards the end of the book when they did the the revival of torch yes. song the difference between the audience back in the 70s and the audience in 2021 yeah. or 2019 um and it really was remarkable mm-hmm. back originally you had a straight audience with gay people sprinkled in there and they were trying to hide. Yeah, they really were. They were, they were trying to hide and they were very quiet. They were not the loud laughers in the audience. Yeah. Now the audience came in to a party. They were there with all their gay friends and they was, they was bringing pinatas in there. They was, they was having a party and and they owned it. It yeah. was not my tort song mm-hmm. They owned it This was part of their history This was something they earned This was something they owned and appreciated So whereas you had this fear yeah. Because I, When I wrote Tort Song You could still be arrested just for holding hands yeah. On the street You you know it, it, Cops still broke into bars Yeah, um, And then And here we were you know, these years later, and though it's a lifetime, it's not that long. Yeah, and and how did that happen? You know, yes, a lot of hard work, but also the dreaming of young people. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was a kid, and you had the street queens who were doing the fighting. We also had the Mattachine Society who were screaming at us to shut the fuck up, put on a white shirt and a skinny tie and look like them. Mm -hmm. And that's how we will win our rights. And they hated the street Queens. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm out there at a, I I forget what year it was, but I don't remember what year it was, but, but um. I noticed this group in yeah. front of as as we we're gathering for for the Gay Day Parade. Yeah, and I noticed this group, marriage equality. Yeah, what what's with this marriage equality crap? And I look, <laughs> and they're like all standing there, and they're performing a marriage. You know, somebody's performing a marriage, and we have things to really fight for here. Yeah. We don't really got time to get a white dress and, and and flowers, and who the fuck cares if you get a cake or not? Yeah. We got we have uh, you know the uh, just list the uh, AIDS was still happening and and and, um, and don't ask don't tell and, mm-hmm. and um, we're still banned from giving blood to the Red Cross and all we have this a day. lot of stuff yeah. and they're busy wanting it and then I said to myself, you know what? shut the fuck up yeah they're the young people. they've chosen this yeah. as their issue. The best thing you can do is shut up and listen. Yeah. Which is what's going on right now with a lot of movements. People yeah. just don't want to shut up and listen to what other people have to say. Yeah. Shut up and listen and back them up. Well, guess what? They turned out to be right. Because <laughs> heterosexuals couldn't maybe understand gays in the military. Oh yeah. my God, I don't want to see my dick while I'm you know, while we're in a foxhole. Yeah. But they did understand wanting to be married. Yeah. They did understand tax law. Yeah. They did understand wanting to have children. They did understand wanting monogamy. They didn't
2: und- they and they it,
3: finally had something they could relate to.
2: And it goes back to Torch Song in a lot of ways, that idea of you know, we all want love, we all want acceptance, we all want to be have someone to choose us in a lot of ways. And and it I think those words were kind of the groundwork for a lot of that.
3: I think one of the big mistakes we made in in civil society. <laughs> it's a big thought, but civil. Hear me out. Yeah. This idea that I was taught as a child, this you know, Brotherhood Day and all that crap, yeah. that we're all the same. That we're really under the skin. We're all the same and we should all appreciate each other because we're all the same. I have lived a long time and I've got to say, none of us is the same. Every (laughs) one of us is different. We are all individuals. You can take twin brothers and put them next to each other. They're not alike. We grew up in the same home. My brother and I grew up in the same home almost nothing in common we are all you know i i, I really started realizing when i grew up i thought there were gay people and straight people and everybody else was in the closet yeah when i when i you know or, or or in denial yeah when i wrote casa valentina i picked a group i mean i picked a group it's it's all based on real people yeah here was a group of people who All had the same interest, heterosexual men who believed on some level that they had a girl within. That's what they called it, the girl within. And they would go up to the Catskills on weekends and put on nice dresses. And I said, if there was ever a more homogeneous group, this has got to be it. And I sat down figuring this was going to be an easy one to write. A lot of great jokes here when I sat and I read what they wrote and I read their, their their opinion pieces and I read their letters and I read their diaries, not two of them yeah. were the same. None of them. One wore dresses because they liked the way it looked and only lived in the mirror. Another one had to have it in photographs. Somebody else just wanted the feel of the silk on their clothing. One only cared about underwear. One only cared about gowns. Wow. One thought that, that having sex... Period was a horrible thing. One thought, I'm a woman, I should have sex with men. Yeah. Yeah. Ins- the only thing they agreed on was smoking. They all smoked because <laughs> it looked good, you know, it looked good. Yeah. yeah. Um, elegant. But yeah, elegant. Yeah. But it was insane, insane. And I started realizing if this little group, if this little teeny group, yeah. there was no two people alike why should there be in the world and what is this shit that we keep trying to sell each other that we're all alike we're all different appreciate our differences Mm -hmm. tell me about you i'll tell you about me i will respect you you respect me let's stop making
2: believe that we're all the same the timing of torch song is so poignant in both the film and the play in that the the play came at the sort of the right at the beginning of hiv aids and you know, when you gave that Tony speech, the AIDS epidemic in the New York Times article had just come out not long before that speech, and and it, about you know the gay related immune deficiency and that when it really was announced, and then of course when the film came out, you famously talked about how in the book at least that that you didn't want AIDS being a part of the story because this was a story that came before that, and you wanted to do a gay film that and a gay story that. Wasn't necessarily bogged down by this. It was something different than this. You wanted to tell a different representation of a queer man in that time period.
3: Well, they didn't want to be defined by it. Exactly. You know, it's like, it's, as I say in the book, does every Jewish story start with Tay Sachs?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: You know, yeah. we're going to tell the story of Einstein's life. Let's start with Tay Sachs. <laughs> Uh, or or every black story starts with sickle cell anemia. Yeah. These are diseases, and not and and they, and and when you're talking about someone's life, of course, in places that uh, AIDS is going to show up, but not. And when I wrote the plays, there was no AIDS. Yeah, I finished. We AIDS showed up when we had moved the show from off-off-Broadway to off-Broadway. That's when the articles began to show up. Yeah. Joel Carruthers, who's playing my lover in the show, was the first person that I knew who was sick. But it wasn't until he almost died, until he almost his death, that we realized it was AIDS.
2: Yeah.
3: Um. And, and so why did I have to rechange my entire world because you were comfortable saying they're diseased, they're diseased. Look at them all. They're all diseased, Yeah, which is what they wanted to say. That's what they really wanted to say. Let's not be cute about it. They all wanted to say, see that? God's judgment. God's judgment on
2: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, what impact do you think AIDS had both on the reception of the play on Broadway, but also with the film? And I mean, I believe you made the right decision completely with the film in Not having it be another tragic, you know, AIDS story that we had seen time and time again, and would see more of for the years after that. Disease of the month. Yeah, it was. It it became that. Like, do you? I mean, I think you made the right decision, but do you feel that? How did it impact the show? Um, I I I don't think it did any any
3: more than it impacted other shows. I mean, Mm -hmm. there was for a while this thing of. don't go to restaurants because it's all gay waiters and they spit on your food. Yeah. Don't go to theater because it's all gay people And th- that was around. So it didn't matter whether it was us Tortso, or, you know, yeah. the Barnum, yeah. you know, chorus line, it was all the same. So, so it didn't impact there. The movie is something different, but the movie was, it was just, a, a, it was at a real height of, of AIDS panic. And, um, and I tell the story of that cartoon that I saw. In, yeah. I think it was in the New Yorker. Yeah, um, yeah. where there was three movies showing at a triplex: Tequila Sunrise, um, te- George yeah. Song, Tequila Sunrise, and the other one started with the T Oh, Terminator. Yeah, and this couple walking past with the guy saying, "I'm not standing in that line." you know, yeah. those gay pe- with those gay people.
2: The, the Barbara Walters interview, you wrote about it in the book. It is iconic. I have, uh, you know, it's something that is shared so often and you were so poignant in it. The, the You talk about how she asked you what it's like to be a homosexual and your face. And it was, you had this sort of visceral reaction that every gay person feels at some point. Do you feel like that question and the way you kind of have to sort of defend your sexuality. Does that still exist today, do you think, in a lot of ways? And do you feel like people are still having to sort of answer that question?
3: Yeah, I think I think we always have to answer questions because I think prejudice is always there. Mm-hmm. Like I said, they the idea that people want everyone to be the same as them. Yeah. That that's somehow normal. Yeah. The um and to identify you as abnormal is comforting yeah, yeah. I, can't be, I can't be richer than you but <laughs> i can be normal yeah. um yeah <laughs> so i don't know i mean have i faced it all my life
2: absolutely hairspray came just five years after you uh got sober and you wrote about that in the book about how it it was a, it was i mean it was a pivotal role for you it was a pivotal experience absolutely. for you It and it, it it did a lot of sort of amazing things what Amazing. How do you, how do you feel getting sober sort of because a lot of people I think a lot of artists fear that getting sober is going to impact their work and it it might hurt their work did you ever fear that at all and 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 how did the how did hairspray sort of change everything for you
3: I think I, I do know that feeling of you know if I get sober I won't be able to write again and it's such a lie because yeah. the truth is you're not you're not you're writing through something yeah. you're you're you you're, you're walking over broken glass yeah and, and saying it's the broken glass that makes me walk yeah. what a stupid thing to do yeah and it's only to, and it's mostly fear of getting sober I mean yeah. nobody wants to get sober I didn't want to get sober. Yeah. I was I knew I was dying. Yeah. I mean, I was physically dying. I describe it in the book. Yeah. Hadn't had a hadn't had a, a solid bowel movement in months. Yeah. My legs were killing me from developing gout. Yeah. Um I, I I never had a hangover because I was never sober. I couldn't, I still to this day can't imagine. I used to go to the gym three times a week and sweat. And how did nobody around me say this guy just stinks of alcohol. He probably, they probably didn't just never said anything or yeah. they had their own problems. And <laughs> oh, who knows? Yeah. But, but the truth is, nothing is easy when you're, when it's fueled by drugs. Mm-hmm. And you know, but you don't know that until you escape it. Yeah. And, and escaping it. So did I have a choice? No, I was dead. Yeah. I was dead. <laughs> yeah. Dead. So coming out of that death place where I had said, okay doing what I wanted to do led me to a very dark, horrible place. I am now giving up my will mm-hmm. for the moment. Cause you can only do it one day at a time yeah. and see where that takes me. And, and then, and then it took me to unbelievable places. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, uh, could I have done tort song? could i have done um well i didn't you know back in the torch song days there were people that uh, that that have said to me now oh i knew you had a problem then i didn't really have a problem then Mm -hmm. um well well, we had one tradition my dresser and i had one tradition i had gotten for christmas one year a um bush it was just like a you know no leaves on it just like a, a, a stick, yeah, with sticks, <laughs> yeah, and hanging off it were little those little bottles of of something. kind Oh yeah, yeah, tiny yeah. bottles, of, yeah. and so we, we made a tradition of every night before I went out for the final scene, yeah, uh, the drug scene, where you know the the bed scene, yeah, um, the two of us would split a bottle that big. somebody oh. said, "Oh, the two of you have a problem." that ain't problem drinking yeah. but anyway
1: yeah.
3: Um, yeah so so it wasn't until i got so 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 i would say to anybody who's even think but if they're thinking that they got bigger problems yeah just, and
2: hairspray was just, a, an amazing post sober moment for you it just it, it
3: it was and it was and it was, and it was wonderful and like i said i couldn't have done it because of the physicality of it also yeah. i mean well t- towards some, i mean uh, hairspray was not as hard as fiddler fiddler yeah. was Really torture on the body. Yeah. That, that dancing and all. Oh, yeah. Just I'm sure. Kill you. Because here's when I got off stage every now and then. Of course, yeah. it was just to change clothes, but yeah. you got off stage. Yeah. You
2: know? Yeah. Um, Marissa,
3: Marissa used to yell at me marissa played my daughter yeah she's saying i'm out there killing myself the whole goddamn night i'm dancing here and i'm dancing there and i'm singing and you walk out in a different <laughs> dress and they go oh look at him in the fabulous dress <laughs> then you go and you lay down some more and i have to work my ass off.
2: i thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate i just it. love
3: being on the radio with you <laughs> this is the radio right no.
2: If you're a child of the late 90s or early aughts, then it's likely the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer was very important to you. The series stars Sarah Michelle Gellar as Buffy and followed her adventures as she battled against vampires, demons, and other forces of the darkness. It has since become a cult classic, although recent accusations against the show's creator, Josh Whedon, has made that love for the show complicated. Today, I spoke with Evan Ross Katz about his new book, Into Every Generation a Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts, which covers why we love Buffy, but also addresses the complicated nature of that love in light of the accusations against Whedon. Your new book, so fun, Into Every Generation a Slayer is Born. You are the biggest Sarah Michelle Gellar stan in the world. I think you probably hold, I think you proudly hold that title. Am I wrong? Would you, would you not? Yeah,
1: no. I would use the term historian because to me, a stan connotates like a love for, but I think historian goes even deeper because it's like, I can pull out the necessary information and yes. bites from her career to sort of like legitimize my standom.
2: Yes. So you can stand, but you also can curate mm-hmm. it into an, a conversation that is necessary
1: necessary indeed i like that framework yes i like
2: that too uh so uh, what what made you want to i mean I, I can't imagine like a publisher out there is like we need we need a sarah michelle geller Buffy the vampire slayer book like even i'm it's a it's a wonderful topic for a book but i don't think anyone
1: was like craving for it so what made you come up with the idea to do something like this Well, first of all, that is any publishing company's oversight (laughs) in not realizing that a lack of Sarah Michelle Gellar content on the books is a problem. Um, For me, I saw that the 25th anniversary for the show was coming up. I knew that I had access to a lot of the cast, specifically the female cast that I love and revere. And I thought it would be a good time to sort of explore all of the ways that this show, which I consider so you know, foundational to like who I am, the way I speak, how I dress, so many, you know, aspects of my life, I thought it would be a good time to re-explore it and re-examine it through a 2022 lens and kind of look at the ways that the show has aged remarkably well, and then conversely, some of the areas that it hasn't, and Although I didn't know um, the allegations uh, against Joss Whedon by Chris Carpenter, Michelle Trachtenberg, and Amber Benson were not public at the time, there were, beginning in 2017, you know, stories out there. And there were the allegations against Ray Fisher on the set of Justice League. So I was not entirely sidelined through the process when I learned uh, what we all learned. So that also informed the book in a whole new way. But yeah, from the outset, it was sort of, you know... Right, what you know. I know this show. I have yeah. access to the people. Let's do it. And then through the process, it became, uh, you know, uh, a larger conversation about how do we love a thing um, still when the thing we thought we love uh, changes its identity, yeah. or when we learn more about what the thing that we love truly is.
2: And that that's such a such an insightful thought because it, you know. I think a lot of, I mean, you and I are nostalgia freaks. It's just, it's, I mean, I'm one of those people too. I think I was never a huge like Buffy person, but I was a huge Sarah Michelle Geller person more for like, I know what you did last summer. Like I was, I was the cinematic universe of Sarah Michelle, Gellar, mm. if you will. Um, that said, I, I were nostalgia freaks. And a lot of times these shows that we love, I'm thinking like the Cosby show, I'm thinking Roseanne. I'm thinking a lot of shows when, Later on, certain things come out about people involved with that show, and it does make it difficult to sometimes have like a conversation about the show because of the allegations around the show. How how did that sort of give you a sort of a left turn in your writing of the book and and the process of writing of the book? And has it kind of changed not so much your opinion of the show, but how you communicate about the show?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. First of all, I love those comparisons with the Cosby show and with Roseanne because I think those are very apt comparisons. Um, I think the difference, though, in those two shows is you have an actor slash, you know, creator or someone who's sort of like, you know, yeah, making creative decisions, whereas in the case of Buffy, Sarah Michelle Gellar was really the, you know, who was on screen and Joss was behind the scenes. I think that it does not change the way that I view the show at all, but it certainly changes the way that I talk about the show. And I think that, This is not a unique conversation, unfortunately, in that, you know, I think Woody Allen is a really great example (laughs) um, in someone who has this body of work that is in many senses unmatched. And one really can't, you know, I, I think I'm not the first person to say this, but it's like you can't undo the memory of how you felt when you first watched something, even when you gain new information about it. You know, there are people out there that were raised on the Cosby show and you can't take that from them. And you can't tell them that the man who sort of, for so many people was a hybrid father figure, you Mm -hmm. can't say that like, oh, well, he's bad. So therefore everything you know, or everything that, you know, is unlearned or you have to, you know, give that up. So I, with that new information, what it can do uh, as you, as you pointed out, as, as I say, is like it it changes the way I talk about the show changes the way that I communicate my, my thoughts about it. And it changes the way I look at certain aspects of the show. And if nothing else, I think it gives me a greater appreciation for the women on this show um, and what they had to allegedly endure behind the scenes. And um, it just makes me want to, shift people's perceptions as much as i can around buffy being created by joss whedon and the way i think of it now is buffy was created by joss whedon but it's no longer his
2: exactly yes completely i think that's a and and i think roseanne's probably a great example for that and that like the show has moved on and had a whole other very profitable life without roseanne and it just shows you the 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 thing that you think is the person behind the sort of scenes is sometimes it's the fans and it's the characters and it's the stories that continue on and the star of Buffy. I mean, Buffy is one of those rare shows that like it was based on a film, but the show went beyond the film and it just be, the film almost became an afterthought. What, what about Sarah Michelle Geller in particular? She's such a unique, singular force and actor in terms of sort of how she portrayed the part, her persona sort of became a part of how we process her as an actress from the show, from Buffy. What do you think it was? What combination of forces made this show so iconic?
1: Listen, that is a topic I'll be thinking about for the rest of my days. But I think one (laughs) thing that comes to mind is there's so much that happens on her face at any given time. She is able to convey a thousand emotions and at the same time she always felt like a teenager there's a way for me sometimes when i watch a lot of modern television like i'm thinking about euphoria for instance where Mm -hmm. i can't really escape the fact that i'm watching 20 somethings and and in many cases like middle 20 somethings to older 20 somethings and and the maturity that sort of comes with uh having spent more time in your body and i think one thing about sarah's performance especially in the early years when she was playing 16 17 18 was you really felt like you were watching a teenager yeah. you felt her processing so many emotions and she has a great face for processing information um she's just has this dexterity and then also she was able to do so much you know the show required genre bending yeah. um and i often say it's not even really genre bending so much is like the show just like um, rejected genre in so many ways. Cause some people will say like, Oh, it's so many genres, but it, it's really just, it's its own entity. And I think she was so great at nailing the punchline when she had to, but also looking great kicking butt, but also giving you a cry on screen that no other actor can really do outside of maybe like Meryl and Nicole. Was just and Viola thinking, She's Meryl. She's, she's the Meryl of TV. She is. Yeah. She is. So yeah, I just think that there's a, a quality about her that's both larger than life and an every girl quality, and I think that that quality in her is exactly Buffy, because Buffy yeah. is at once every girl and at once the chosen one, and that duality is something I think Sarah was able to. I was going to say vacillate between, but it's actually not vacillation. She just occupied both all the time.
2: Yeah. How close are you? I mean, I'm imagining you at Sarah Michelle Gellar and Freddie Prince's house, Freddie Prince is cooking and you and Sarah Mm. are just chatting. Like has, has that happened? Will it happen? And um, can you make it happen if it hasn't happened?
1: So I'm seeing her next week for lunch. Um, But I think that we're going out and I don't think Freddie will be cooking for us, but I like sort of the dreamscaping that you're doing. And I, I don't want to say that that's unrealistic. I would say at this point, we would be considered friends. She would use that term. I would never use that term unless it was copacetic. Um, And I would say that that really, I mean, I've known her for five years now, um, but it wasn't really until the, once the book was sort of more or less done, I mean, that I think that we really became close or maybe that's even exaggeration, that we became friends. But I would say our friendship is very seldom do we talk about Buffy um, at all? I would say our friendship is spent talking about The Real Housewives or and Just Like That or gossiping because we're both big gossips. Um, yeah. It's very, very, very little about the show.
2: Wow. That's, I mean, that's just, you, you, your chi- childhood you must be like so so jealous of adult you.
1: It's a funny thing because like that childhood self doesn't go away. Like I still have that same you know putting her on a pedestal but i also am able to be my whole self around her and like i don't feel like i'm a, a fan when i'm around her so it's an interesting thing i often think about the whole like never meet your heroes thing and obviously i have and the result was good yeah. um for now um but uh but i do think about it a lot sort of like it's just such a a unique trajectory and i'm very i hold it very close because um You know, it's one thing to, you know, to meet them, but then to actually, you know, be sitting down next week and having lunch after a childhood spent, you know, staring up at her on my walls. It's weird. It's abnormal.
2: Well, Evan, we I feel like covered everything. People need to go read your book. It is so as of this recording, it will be out into every generation. A slayer is born. And of course, listen to your podcast. Shut up, Evan. But where can people follow you on the Internet?
1: Can follow me at Evan Ross cats on Instagram. And I'm like, I'm like inching my toe back into Twitter a little bit. Um, and <laughs> I those Twitter are scares me
2: still, I love Twitter, but I, it's, it's,
1: I've depressing. been, uh, I, I stopped tweeting in may of 2020. And then I just began lightly like dabbling a little bit, but it's still not the space for me, but I recognize that there's value in it. There is value
2: in it. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Evan.
1: My pleasure. You are fantastic to talk to. It's, I mean, you said you like that relaxed vibe, and you definitely succeeded. (laughs)
2: And now, your roundup of everything you need to watch, read, and look out for in pop culture next week in under 60 seconds. In film, Jason Statham stars in Operation Fortune. There's an exciting new horror flick called X. Sandra Oh can be seen in the spooky new film Uma. And Kiki Palmer stars in a film called Alice about a slave in the antebellum south discovering a shocking reality outside the borders of her plantation. In music, it's all about Rosalia's hentai. Go watch her performances on last week's Saturday Night Live. In books, just go buy Harvey Fierstein's memoir, I Was Better Last Night. It's a fantastic read that blends Broadway and Hollywood and gay rights history. Also, pick up Evan's book about Buffy, Into Every Generation a Slayer is Born. And on TV, earlier you heard Jamie's brief chat with Anne Hathaway about the series We Crashed. Now go watch it on Apple TV+. Also this week, the return of Donald Glover's Atlanta to FX... Amy Schumer debuts her new show, Life and Beth, on Hulu. And Netflix added the Ukrainian series Servant of the People about a high school teacher who becomes president. It starred the then-popular comedian, Vladimir Zelensky, before he became the country's actual president. What did I miss? Let me know what you're watching this week. You can find me at H. Allen Scott on everything. And thanks for listening to the Parting Shot podcast. For more on the latest news and podcast, head to newsweek.com and follow Newsweek on all social platforms. If you like the podcast do me a favor and leave a little rating and review. I'd like that. That'd be nice. I'll be back next week with the star of the second season of Bridgerton, Simone Ashley. I'll also chat with comedian Rose Matafeo about her HBO comedy series Starstruck. And yes, I'll give you everything you need to know before Oscar's big night on Sunday, March 27th. Until then, grab a snack, watch something fun, and have a great week.